Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 324th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a young but veteran film executive who is the toast of Hollywood this week after Parasite, an $11 million South Korean film that his company is distributing in the United States, made history at the 92nd Academy Awards, becoming the first film not in the English language to ever win the Best Picture Oscar, while its filmmaker, Bong Joon-ho, who he helped to bring to prominence when they first began collaborating 14 years ago, personally took home Oscars for producing, directing, screenwriting, and international film, tying Walt Disney's 66-year-old record for most Oscars won by an individual in a single night. I'm talking about the founder and CEO of Neon, Tom Quinn. Over the course of our conversation at Bicoastal Neon's West LA offices, the 49-year-old and I discussed his journey from North Carolina to Hollywood, and from acting to publicity to acquisitions and distribution, what he learned from his stints at Samuel Goldwyn Films, Magnolia, and Radius en route to starting Neon in 2016, what is at the root of his special relationship with Bong and his passion for all of Bong's films, but especially Parasite, and what Parasite's historic Oscar showing means for the future of Neon, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. It has not even been 48 hours yet since your little movie made some big history. I was so happy to be able to see you after the show and congratulate you, give you a hug. But uh, I think that at that point you were still in shock. Has it sunk in yet? Well, you're probably not surprised by this. I'm I'm still in shock <laughs> 48 hours later. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, somebody asked me, is this the happiest night of your life? I was like, the happiest night of my life was marrying my wife's mm-hmm. Lester Wright. Second happiest night of my life was... Uh, this movie. Fantastic. And winning Best Picture for Parasite and Bong Joon-ho. Well, obviously, I'm going to have a lot to ask you about Parasite. But before we get into that, I want to talk about your own journey to this moment. And you're not an easy guy to research because you don't often talk about yourself. And in fact, you don't even have a Wikipedia page yet, although I suspect that will quickly change. <laughs> so let's start right at the beginning. Oh. Uh, where were you born and raised and what did your parents do for a living? Oh, my God. Wow. I was born in Greenville, North Carolina in 1970, and my dad is a basketball coach. He coached ECU, uh, went to the uh, NCAA second round 1974, and so I grew up on a basketball court, 
love basketball. My dad's biggest fan is my mom, who also loves basketball. Mm -hmm. And so for whatever reason, my dad got this crazy idea to go abroad and coach in Europe uh, and then the Middle East. And so we, me, my sister, mom, followed him everywhere, every team he went to. And, uh, you know, Saturday night was game night. We went out to the game. And whenever we lost, it was rough night with the family. Whenever we won, <laughs> we're going to McDonald's and yes. had a blast. So, yeah, I'd say people assume my dad is either a spy or works <laughs> for the government. But it was basketball. Well, and so because of his work in Europe, you were out of the country, I think, until about 14, I read, maybe later. That's right. 14. That's right. And I wonder, just as a side note, how did that affect your movie-going tastes as they were probably being formed? Were you seeing all kinds of movies? The funny thing is, I, I didn't... The first movie I saw was Car Wash, okay. which, you know, I'm not a great parent. My dad didn't make great parenting decisions, <laughs> bringing his, what, seven, eight-year-old son to see Car Wash. <laughs> and I was very much a Dutch, Belgian kid at that point, speaking Dutch and then speaking Flemish. So any contact with American culture was like, I, I would go nuts for. <laughs> and seeing a movie in Brussels, it being car wash, I learned words that I had never <laughs> heard before. My mother very quickly, uh, you know, put me in check. You may never use these <laughs> words at home. But from there, me and my dad would always go see you know, Bond was a big fixture in our lives. Uh, I heard when, Mad Max was a big thing for you. Mad Max was huge. Mad Max is a little later. Um, you know, at that point, we were in Dubai. My dad was coaching the UAE national team. And, you know, Dubai was Dubai in the 80s. Most people think of Dubai as what it is now. It was amazing then. And we lived in this complex where every movie from around the world was somehow available on this running loop for three channels. And, you know, I remember, you know, friends of mine in the U.S. saying, oh, how did you see E.T. in Dubai? I said, I saw it on TV. Uh, and I don't think it was available on, you know, sort of regular premium viewing here in the U.S. at the point. And I came across Mad Max. And Mad Max stuck out to me in a way that was, wow, that's, you know, I can say it's dystopian now. But back then it was just fucking cool. Um <laughs> And so movies were the thing because TV wasn't much in Sweden. It wasn't much in Belgium. But, you know, credit to my mom and dad. I think we were the first family in the small town, Tudesa, in Sweden, that got a VHS. Mm -hmm. And my dad did it so he could get games from the U.S. sent to him to scout other players, oh, whatever. Like a, a, on VCR. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, coaching tips, whatever. And I started getting shows like The Hulk. And so all my friends in Sweden would show up at my house <laughs> to watch the Hulk. Right. Yeah. So I guess around 14, as we were saying, you come back to the States and there's those few years before you go off to UNC Chapel Hill. What were, I read something about, were you picking tobacco? Oh my God. Wow. Oh, you really, you really get there. Yeah, we get it. Uh, so, you know, my mom and dad are both from very humble beginnings. My dad was uh, grew up in Beckley, West Virginia. You know, didn't know who his father was. Was sort of, you know, pretty tough upbringing. My mother, one of nine children, in North Carolina, poked in North Carolina as a cotton farmer. And for whatever reason, I, I definitely think I inherited that sort of same, do whatever you can to get ahead. And uh, 
the only job I could get in the summer at 12 years old in Greenville, North Carolina, we used to spend summers back in the States, mm-hmm. was picking cucumbers. Mm-hmm. You had to be 18 to pick tobacco. <laughs> and I made $6 a day. And I can't believe my mother let me do this. <laughs> but it's like, if you want to make a living, you got to go do something. Yeah. And so I did that, and I had a paper out for a short while. Yeah, I I, I love that job. Yeah. I thought it was... Uh, you knew the goal. You had to fill every bushel. You got 60 cents for every bushel. And the, you know, the group of people that were out there were, you know, I was definitely the youngest. <laughs> it's probably illegal. <laughs> but uh, I, and I remember taking that money and uh, going to see matinee movies. Mm-hmm. I, I think, honestly, that's how I spent most of what I earned. Just to go to the movies. Just to go to the movies. Wow. And so at the time when came... You know, it came time to go to college and you end up going off to UNC. What was the sort of what in your imagination did you think you were going to end up doing with the rest of your life? What was your major? What were your how did you spend your time? Uh, Well, this is probably the part of my life that I'm least proud of. I definitely thought I was going to be a big time basketball player. I idolized Kareem Mm Abdul-Jabbar. You know, my family did not do a good job of telling me I was never going to grow <laughs> beyond six feet. Uh, so I think that dream lasted till I was about maybe 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, my mother, you know, I went to movies with my dad, but my mother loved going to London. So you do, do like these day and two day trips to London from, you know, Holland, Belgium, Sweden. And we'd always go to theater. Mm. And I had no interest in theater, but... My mother introduced me to Oklahoma, introduced me to no sex, please, we're British. <laughs> what am I doing seeing this play in London? And I loved it. Yeah. And there was something about the live element of theater that really got under my skin. And uh, I fell in love with theater. With the goal of being an actor? Well, as a kid, you know, you don't realize that there's so many other jobs that you could be a part of. And uh, I gravitated towards becoming an actor. And so throughout the time you're at UNC, was that still the goal? I was, I was, uh, it's funny, in high school, uh, I quit the football team my senior year, which was a very unpopular decision to be in the fall play, which was uh, a play I had seen. In London, I think at the time it was one of the longest running shows in the world, The Mousetrap by Agatha Christie. Yeah. And I played a character named Christopher Wren, which my advisor at the time, who was also the football coach, not very supportive, <laughs> and said to me, and I, I do not forget this, yeah. uh, I hate the way he said it, he said, I guess you want to be a thespian. And I said, hmm, interesting. Yeah, I do, actually. Yeah. And so... His plan backfired. Yeah. And I loved it. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. Anything could happen. Anything could go wrong. Every show's different. It felt competitive in a way that I was sort of replaced my love of uh, sports and basketball with theater. And so that's what I carried on into UNC. Was there, you know, was it sort of university-sanctioned productions, or were you doing things on the side, or how did that work? So I fell into a pretty rebellious group at UNC where we did a lot of our own productions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was doing stuff within the UNC dramatic department. I was doing stuff within the speech department. So I was a, I was a minor in drama, but a major in speech. Mm. And the weird thing was like speech was about something. It was not about the craft. It was about the point of view and purpose. Mm-hmm. And weirdly enough, a lot of the really awesome actors 
from the drama department gravitated towards the very original, cool, creative productions that were being put on by the speech department. <laughs> and one of those people was Billy Crudup. No way. Yeah. So you guys knew each other back then? So we knew then. each other, still know each other. Had a nice moment recently at, I think, Maybe the SAG Awards. Or SAG, okay. Yeah, and uh, Billy was the best actor at school, but we wound up playing a lot of the same roles inside of the speech department. Okay. But, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I was a true... True loser bohemian, sold my car to produce a play, Orphans. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, yeah, that was, it was all failed. I mean, just every, every single venture was a massively, you know, I, I remember opening night for Orphans, five people in the audience. <laughs> but I loved it. I really loved it. And how soon after graduating did you decide, let's give this a go in L.A.? Because I'm assuming that's why you moved out here. You graduated so, in 95? 96, you're in L.A. Well, I graduated in 92, uh, and I stuck around. I was oh, a true okay. slacker. Okay. Uh, and then moved to Wilmington mm -hmm. for a year. We thought that that was the place to go to get your feet wet in the industry because there's so much film production there. But the reality is that everybody that was working in film there was either from Atlanta, New York, or L.A. And you know, I knew I wasn't ready as an actor, I, I, I always felt uncomfortable on stage, even though I loved it. And I, and I didn't want to go find out who I was until I understood what I had to offer. And, you know, it, it, it couldn't have sense. just been self-serving. And, but, um, can I just interrupt for one second? Yeah. Because I, I glossed over something else that may have been percolating in your mind at this time. What had been your side job while you were in college? I was a terrible waiter. I don't like waiting on people. Uh, and I got fired from Red Lobster pretty quickly. I wound up as a dishwasher at a restaurant, mm -hmm. which I liked. And, uh, you know, one of the jobs that I'd had one summer before I graduated high school was uh, working at Hardee's, working the grill. And I love that job, too. I got to cook these burgers the way I wanted to. I love the group of people that I worked with. And so a lot of odd jobs. But in college, the one job that I used to joke was the American dream was delivering pizzas, mm -hmm. bringing joy to people and parties <laughs> all over Chapel Hill. Yeah, that, that seemed to be like a perfect fit for me. But other odd jobs, I was a... Uh, well, there's one in particular that I'm thinking about. Wasn't there a video store? Oh, yeah. So before I left Chapel Hill, I worked at VizArt Video and... That was, that was actually the transition for me. I'd already planned to move to LA to give it a shot, mm -hmm. whatever that meant, mm -hmm. you know, now or never. But my introduction to film was truly VizArt Video because they they let every employee take six videos home a day, and you know I got introduced to films that honestly I they hadn't really struck me. I was I was you know my world revolved around Samuel French, not film. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, dipping into film was, you know, John Malkovich. My God, what an extraordinary stage actor. Oh, he's in this movie. Mm -hmm. um, but VizArt Video introduced me to movies like Man Baxter. And I say it with that accent because if you haven't seen it, you got to see it. Most extraordinary film about this dog. And it opened up my mind to something that film can do that theater cannot. And film does it more consistently. Uh, I still think that theater is more extraordinary when it works, but it, it rarely does. Mm -hmm. And that was my filmography. And that's where I, I started to learn about posters, trailers, how we position it in the video store. Mm -hmm. Why are these directors quarantined over here? Staff picks. Mm -hmm. So uh, curating. 
curating yeah. and curating for myself yeah. and, you know, movies like the player mm-hmm. weirdly enough, Vizar, you know, was not blockbuster. It, it, it truly covered the gamut. And, uh, I was introduced to the seven up series mm-hmm. first documentary. I, I think I've ever seen. Yeah. And I just thought that was amazing. The concept of that, who's crazy enough to commit to making this across a lifetime, both filmmaker and the individuals involved, the subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Yes, that was a beautiful introduction, but I don't know that any of that would have meant that much to me had I not already been rooted in in a creative community. You know, I love theater, but the thing I love most about theater is rehearsal. It's adult playtime and getting to do creative intellectual things with your friends and then inviting a third party, an audience into that experience. You know, I, I love that. And so... I think, you know, graduating to finally going to find my career in L.A., thank God it was short-lived. <laughs> well, to connect the dots, you arrive in L.A. when? It was at the tail end of 95. Okay. And yet, by 96, you are working in publicity, which I didn't know about until I started prepping for this. So <laughs> how the hell did that happen? Well, I moved to L.A. to be an actor. hmm I don't know how, but I stumbled into a house manager job at The Matrix, run by uh, one of the producers of Law & Order, Mm -hmm. uh, Joe Wolf. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was the perfect entry into L.A., doing classics from around the world, Ibsen, Brecht, The Homecoming by Pinter. But each of these shows were triple cast with A-list and B-list TV stars. Mm -hmm. And I got to watch each of these shows every night. And the extraordinary experience of watching the same play reinterpreted by different actors. You never know who you never knew who was gonna go on. And you know, this was obviously not gonna be I couldn't pay the rent with this job, but it was just immersed me in the sort of public performance space of LA that, you know, LA doesn't get enough credit as a wonderful, amazing theater town because you have all this wealth of talent that doesn't get to work its muscle. So I, I was very, very happy. What I was, what I was not happy with was all the other youngsters who were working at this theater and the running sentiment of, I know I'm going to make it. I was like, how do you know? I don't know. I'm going to try. But I very, very quickly realized I'm not going to make it because I don't have that kind of conviction and maybe I'm a little more humble or honest about my talent, mm-hmm. and I didn't know my place. And so that combined with I'm not a good waiter, which means <laughs> I'm not a good kiss-ass, right. I was like, this is going to be short-lived. It's right. not going to work out for you. You have to make a lifelong decision that you know was 12 years in the making. I'd, I'd really been on that journey for a long time. Mm-hmm. And the minute I said I don't want to act was like, liberating (laughs) and everything else after that was just get a job and get a job in a town that actually offers an opportunity to be creative. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what that was. And all I did was temp my way through multiple studios, you know, Disney publishing, Paramount, uh, worldwide TV, Paramount exhibitor relations, but there was always something tangential to something creative. You know, if, if I if I got to be creative five minutes in my day, that was really, that made it all worth it. Mm-hmm. And I was just in awe of 
all the individuals walking on the Paramount mm-hmm. lot, mm-hmm. being able to go to Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was making a decent living. Mm-hmm. Um, as it turns out, I was uh, offered a job to be a temp for the head of publicity at Samuel Goldwyn. Who was that at the time? Nancy Willen. Oh, my gosh. Um, and the movies that Sam and company were doing immediately fit within the purview of what I was working on on a daily basis at BizArt Video. Mm-hmm. And Sam was the distributor of the Up series. Mm-hmm. And I immediately fell in love with the company. It was going through a rough time. Mm-hmm. I think when I got there, it was... Uh, 120 plus employees, four floors of the 10203 building overlooking the golf course. I think Frank Gehry designed that building. And the history of, you know, this is the G and MGM. Mm-hmm. I was like, I I I, I jumped right in. Mm-hmm. And Nancy and I got along great. And I I loved the idea of having a connection to the talent, mm-hmm. to the movies. And it felt creative, even yeah. though, you know, nobody would ever give you credit for it. Mm-hmm. You know, publicists, unfortunately, get blamed by everybody yeah. for everything that they can't control. Right. <laughs> but I love the company. And that was my real education about the film industry. And then was it a situation where Nancy went to Dennis Davidson Associates, DDA? So Nancy was leaving to uh, head up a West Coast division for a DDA. And she said, do you? Do you want me to, do you want to come with me? I was like, yeah, absolutely. So we still worked on Goldwyn films. Uh, we worked on other movies and we went to Sundance with Sick, The Life and Death of Bob Flanagan, <laughs> which is my introduction to the idea of working on a documentary mm-hmm. and meeting Kirby Dick mm-hmm. and meeting uh, Bob Flanagan's wife and seeing Sundance and, you know, walking around with a huge Motorola phone that you'd rent him when you got there. I mean, this, you know, all this these would d- be probably early 97. This is 97. N- 97. Yeah. I think it's, it's 96 or 97. Cause yeah. in 96, I know you you'd been involved with secrets and lies and breaking the waves. That was a big year. Those go to the Oscars. But then I would guess that first Sundance after that is when you're probably there with the stock. You're absolutely right. And the person that I was introduced to, not introduced to, I'm not sure he knew my name then, but um, I'm pretty sure he did not know my name, uh, was Bingham Ray. Uh, wow. He was barking orders at someone. Can't remember what it was. I'm not sure it was Secrets and Lies or Breaking the Waves. I can't remember. But um, I just remember having this thought, I wonder what he does. <laughs> I had no idea. Right. You know, I still didn't really know how it worked. But those films... I mean, I fell in love with Breaking the Waves. Mm-hmm. And Nancy, to her credit, she's she's like, we have to attend every screening. I was like, okay. She's like, no, no, you have to sit and watch, mm-hmm. engage reactions, and which was pretty, that's, that's a serious commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think I saw Breaking the Waves 12 times, wow. 11 or 12 times that wow. year. And uh, I went into a deep, dark depression. <laughs> uh, but working on the Academy campaign for that, mm-hmm. uh, which in those days, what would an Academy campaign have entailed? I mean, it's hard to believe, but I was doing the mailing out of my office. Of uh, I, I was managing the the database. I was putting things in envelopes and I was constructing my own Excel spreadsheet. And it was an insane amount of work. And there was three of us and I didn't care. I love the idea that, you know, I get to spend the weekend with Stellan Skarsgård. <laughs> um, I get to try to get, you know, I'm trying to get Robbie Mueller an interview, the cinematographer. 
And I felt like I was really a part of something. You know, the irony is that on Secrets and Lies, and this is where Bingham actually did know my name, Mm -hmm. Mike Lee did not get his VHS. (laughs) Naked Man Films, Tom Quinn. I had gotten the wrong address, and it was as if no VHS had been sent anywhere. And I remember... I remember Nancy and Bingham just handing it to me. And I, I was, yeah. Rough day. It was a rough day. Yeah. And, and it's, and, and at some point I admittedly burned out mm-hmm. and, 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 and the story goes, it was, I think it was after the premiere of, um, David Lynch's film, another October films, mm-hmm. Lost Highway, mm-hmm. which I love, mm-hmm. love, love Lost Highway. Mm-hmm. And just tangentially seeing David make his decisions about where he wanted to screen his film, mm-hmm. The whole team around, I, I mean, I was like this, we, we couldn't be in a better position to work on amazing cinema. Mm-hmm. But something went wrong with the premiere. I made an executive decision, which I did not clear with anybody. And, uh, you know, Nancy, to her credit, was very upset with me, mm-hmm. uh, and as she should have been. But I remember checking out in the conversation in our office at the old E building. Mm-hmm. And I could see my house at the bottom of the hills. And I thought you know what? Life's too short. Mm-hmm. I think I'd rather flip burgers and work for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love Nancy mm-hmm. to this day, which mm-hmm. we can get to, but, yeah. uh, I don't know what possessed me to say it, but I said it and I left the office, sat down at my desk and Melanie Hodel who runs, who ran DDA West coast. She said, well, we've got your severance check. Uh, <laughs> sorry, it's not going to work out. I was like, yep, well, I guess I, I guess I can leave now. Right. So uh, needless to say, they sent me home and uh, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. And I almost went to work for Mark Pogoshevsky after that. And to his credit, he said, I don't think you want to be in publicity. So he was, he's MPRM. But wait, wasn't there something where, so we get to a softball game. Oh, yeah. So, so still working with Goldwyn. Yes. We did a lot of Goldwyn films, but the thing that I continued doing while working at DDA was I, I played softball yeah. with the, which I don't know if it's still as big as it was then, but the, you know, it was big in New York, it was big in LA that every studio, yeah. every independent had their softball team. And I was an outfielder for, for Goldwyn <laughs> and I was, and pre- remain with them. So you're saying through the time you'd left, you're at DDA, but they didn't want to lose you. You must've been a good outfielder. I was, I was a great <laughs> outfielder. So all that basketball paid off right. in some way. Right. And it's weird, but because I hustled on, on the softball field, Sam's bookkeeper, longtime bookkeeper, God lover, Lori Halfpenny, great name for a bookkeeper. Yes, <laughs> she, uh, she's like, I think you'd be great to come be Sam's assistant. And I was like, why? She's like, no, no, I like the way you hustle out here. Why don't you come meet with him, see if it could work out? And uh, so I was out of a job. Mm. And uh, I was like, yeah, sure, mm-hmm. let's do it. And Sam and I got along. I mean, I knew him previously, yeah. but not as well as the How opportunity. How old is he at this point? Was he in his 70s? He's an, but an older guy, yeah, yeah quite yeah. a bit older. Yeah. He was old enough that people met him thinking he was the G and MGM. And I was like, no, 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 that's how long this legacy is. <laughs> right, uh, right, right. But I became his assistant and... We were not a good fit. You know, I was, again, I'm not a good waiter. Right, uh, right. But he liked me, and even though he tried to fire me three times, <laughs> he he quickly promoted me. And uh, I felt very much a part of the family because it was a family business. And uh, I was promoted to 
manager of acquisitions, production, and distribution. And but let's just let's pause for to go from assistant to that level of responsibility means people saw something in you, and you also must have had some interest in that aspect of the business. It's not like you came out to LA to get into acquisitions and distribution. So how I, I had heard that the guy who was the president there, Meyer Gottlieb, you ended up kind of more closely working with him. Is that right? No, I Sam and Meyer were longtime partners and one didn't work without the other. And being Sam's assistant, I was aggressive in ways that Sam didn't need me to be. You know, he can manage his own calendar, as it turns out. Uh, he doesn't need to be told what to do. I thought that's what the job was. Mm-hmm. But he liked the fact that I didn't hesitate and that maybe you should go do something else mm-hmm. and stop telling me what to do. <laughs> uh, you know, that company, so many extraordinary executives came through there. And, you know, young and old. And it's hard to find anyone in this industry today that didn't either work there Miramax. And so, you know, it's sort of a, it's a bond, but I love that company. And and one of the things that Sam introduced me to, which was totally random, you know, I went back and cataloged all of his father's files. Mm. Wow. Went through everything. Wow. So seeing the original United Artists contract with Chaplin, I mean, uh, you know, just looking at Danny Kay's contract I just, it, it, it gave me the appreciation and respect of how far this industry had come. But on top of that, I was actually ultimately more consumed with the Goldwyn legacy and how amazing that company was, you know, offices around the world, productions around the world, book deals, uh, you know, a, a VHS deal, a TV, you know. People forget this. Flipper, American Gladiator, all of these things stemming from an independent company. You know, Meyer and Sam built this heavyweight company, an in, a true, true independent company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they just fell on hard times. Three years, I think, of a few busted productions. And, you know, they wound up going public and selling to Metro Media. And so I was there for that. And, you know, from the first days that I worked in publicity to where we wound up after the Metro Media deal ultimately went south. Mm-hmm. We were four people. The whole time. It was 120 down to, to you know, slowly but surely 80 yeah. to 40 to approximately 20 and then four. four. And I was one of the four. You obviously made yourself very indispensable there. And we should say that that from the post-softball return there, it looks like is August 97 and then almost seven years later, February 04 is when you left. And in that time, as you were learning, you know, getting into acquisitions, it seems like the the some of the key titles would have been Super Size Me, Raising Victor Vargas, other specialty films, meaning if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but six hundred or fewer prints, five to ten million bucks a pop, you know, just learning to maximize value on a budget. You you nailed it. That's I've been saying that six hundred print number for feels like two decades mm. that that is we were in the 600 and under space mm. one one small note which I, I don't want to give myself too too much credit mm. but mm. I had no idea that acquisitions would be something that I would want to do mm-hmm. I, I had a much simpler goal in mind you know I was Sam's projectionist mm-hmm. and maybe that's why he promoted me that mm-hmm. I was willing to do the more prestige job but I was happy to go pick up the print at the mm-hmm. airport 
spool it and and run it from mm. the projection booth. Mm. And you know, the idea of being in acquisitions for me was getting paid to watch movies <laughs> and having no real understanding of where it would lead to or what what that actually was. But I really came to enjoy watching movies, even from the projection booth. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so acquisitions was, I get to watch more movies. Yeah. And then it was, oh, I get to travel. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have to negotiate. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's harder. Uh, <laughs> but it felt competitive and fun, worldly, and for the right company was really satisfying. Um, you obviously had an eye to spot something like a you know, the potential of a supersize me or something like that and to go and then nail it is not easy. It was, it was a, you know, I give Meyer a lot of credit too. Mm-hmm. Meyer saw the opportunity with that film, mm-hmm. Howard and Eric at Roadside, yeah. who were a party to the IDP, uh, this sort of co-op distribution model that Meyer had cooked up. But also, you know, being able to work with Sam's, and I give him a ton of credit, Peter Goldwyn, mm-hmm. who was my assistant. Mm-hmm. And we were a pretty powerful duo, Mm -hmm. Uh, traveled the world together and Mm -hmm. uh, he had great taste, good instincts. And together, I I think that we as negotiators actually pretty much got what we wanted, even though it was tough market for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Super Size Me was a a sliver of opportunity that we took the risk and I fell in love with Morgan Mm -hmm. Spurlock. You know, he he was extraordinary in the room post-screening. Uh, his poster design, which he sort of shepherded, mm-hmm. you know, we inherited all of that. Yeah. And I was like, let's just jump on the train. Yeah. And John Sloss sold that, sold that movie in the same condo that I was sitting in 20 plus years, li- what, uh, 20, 17 plus years later this Sunday. And so some things have not wow. changed. Wow. Uh, wow. yeah, I don't, I don't really know why I, I, at some point things that I enjoyed, things that I understood, things that. I could comprehend value, which again felt like sport. Yeah, you know, is is a combination Stats. of art and yeah. commerce. But Goldman's a great place to find those movies that I, I I do think started me on a career that I kind of I know where I wanted to go. Well, and it seems like if aside from the fact that the company had shrunk, a part of the reason you ended up leaving in February '04 and spending the next seven years plus at Magnolia was a desire to just work on maybe a broader range, larger scale, sometimes movies, which you ended up doing ultimately. Um, well, let's just set the scene. When you get there, there it's it's Mark Cuban and Todd Wagner's place, right? They just sort of taken over, very much a startup vibe. And again, I think just four employees, right? We were just four. Yeah, it's 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 funny. The the trajectory of Golden was, and someone else has said this, but I, I say this to other people who are starting out. You know, you should get to a place that's just starting out, yeah, or a place that's going under, because mm-hmm. you'll get to do everything. Mm-hmm. And Goldwyn was both of those things, was downsizing and then started back up again. And the, the reason why I, le- I left was Supersize Me and Raising Victor Vargas were things that I felt that I I really could own mm-hmm. as you know work that I had been a part of mm-hmm. and other movies that I had wanted at the time, Nowhere in Africa, Goodbye Berlin, uh, things that I couldn't get through, things that I could not convince Sam to buy. I felt like, I don't know how many more of these I'm going to get. Mm-hmm. I need to get to a place where we don't make those kinds of mistakes, mm-hmm. no discredit to them. And I looked around and who was out there? Who's, who's, who's got the wherewithal to go do some amazing cinema? Mm-hmm. And 
I was looking at Bingham Ray, who was at UA at the time, whom at this point I knew Bingham Mm -hmm. well, Mm -hmm. and Eamon Bowles Mm -hmm. and his partner in crime, Ryan Werner, who was there, who we were quite close. uh, And they've done Late Marriage and another film. Over at Magnolia. At Magnolia. Yeah. And they, they were basically a three-person company. Yeah. And Eamon and I hit it off. Two weeks later, I was at Magnolia. <laughs> and we were four people in a rat-infested office. <laughs> I won't say whose office it was because it wasn't Magnolia's. It was someone else's. <laughs> yeah, seven and a half years later when I left, we were 40 people with a, a DVD division. and. Well, I want to go through some of the things that you directly did there that I think are pretty incredible and also kind of makes sense now for people who are looking at how you were able to maximize something like Parasite to the, where it's gone. I mean, let's talk about, or even just forget about Parasite, just the relationship with Director Bong, which started there. Um, but first, Mark and Todd at Magnolia at that point, just what were, they had a theatrical property as well in Landmark Theaters. Did they have a TV component as well? A streaming? They a did. TV? You know, they had invested in... Uh I think they inherited the Reicher catalog actually from Goldwyn, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. So a lot of overlap there. And ironically, Goldwyn also at one time owned Landmark. Oh, wow. So I, you know, it would seem that I only gravitate towards companies <laughs> that buy theater chains. Right. But yeah, that was the perfect combination of sort of a very, you know, Eamon's wealth of experience as a quality distributor, you know, committed to art film, combined with the resources and assets and True vision from Mark Cuban and Todd Wagner. Production, multiple companies trying to create a, why not have a foot in every mm-hmm. part of distribution, production, acquisition, so that we can do things better? I mean, I think that people don't give enough credit that this was really, in large part, where the whole concept of day and date came out of, That's right? where it all came from. And in fact, to that point, and just multi-platform releasing all of this, I think it may have started with an idea of yours called Fortnite Films. What was that? Yes. Yeah, it's funny. So I think within three, four weeks of getting there, I'd heard about an idea from a good friend of mine, uh, Will Clark, who started one of my favorite distribution companies of all time, Optimum. Mm -hmm. And I remember when he started that with seven people, you know, back in the aughts, early aughts. And they grew to this massive company. He had this idea based on a, a Lennon principle that over the course of a fortnight, you'd write, record, produce, and release your song directly to an audience. John Lennon had this idea. Yeah, yeah no, no middlemen. Yeah. And how do we do that for film mm-hmm. and truncate that window into three months from inception to audience? And But you need the resources to do it. So... You know, outside of TV production, owning HDNet, mm-hmm. which I think was the first piece in the whole Mark Cuban, Todd Wagner universe, then buying into Magnolia and, and Landmark, we would be able to book theaters without having product film right. to guarantee its existence. You know, it was one had to precede the other, yeah. and we were the only company who could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also another lower budget production arm, HDNet, uh, based out of New York, started by Jason Cleo. Mm-hmm. It would be the perfect combination. We would be the distribution arm. They would be the producer. HDNet would be the behind the scenes documentary of the film in production. And we would commit to doing six of these 
with essentially five directors who stood above title. Steven Soderbergh was the first name that was floated. He would be the godfather mm -hmm. of this. And then a sixth debut director. It was a beautiful idea. Yeah. Amazing. And the other individual who was on board for it was Alex Gibney. Mm -hmm. And I just inserted myself into it, pitched it across all divisions, mm -hmm. and we were basically a go. Mm -hmm. Why it didn't work, I don't know. It never never took off. However, a lot of those films, the idea of what those films would do, uh, that they could be also on theater and HDNet at the same yeah. time, and the fact that Soderbergh's name had you know come up, that turned into Bubble. Right. And then with, with Gibney, I guess you had Enron. And Enron was an HDNet production, mm -hmm. which we distributed at Magnolia. Mm -hmm. And when I got there, we were doing Control by mm -hmm. Jahan Nujim, yeah, right. which I loved Control. Yeah, very good. Our first couple of acquisitions in the rat-infested office <laughs> were, oh, crazy. We bought, the first film we bought was Ungbach for a million dollars, a Thai action film. <laughs> we didn't know what we we're doing. Now, was this, because there would be this repeated gravitation of yours wherever through different places where you've worked towards Asian cinema and genre cinema. Is that, how did that become your passion? I don't know if I sort of can be qualified as a true fanboy. And I've been really agnostic about the films that I gravitate towards. I, 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 I've never felt very comfortable, you know, being divisive about nonfiction, fiction, mm -hmm. foreign language, they all spoke to me very similarly. And the single best action film, the most fun I'd had in a theater in a long time was watching Ung Bak at an AFM screening. <laughs> and Eamon and I were in the back row, literally high-fiving, standing <laughs> up in the screening, clearly like showing our cards, like, who are these two right. idiots? <laughs> but we walked out of there, we're like, we got to buy this. Mm -hmm. And we just pegged a number to it. This is going to be a huge theatrical venture and this is our first film and we sat down with uh luke Besson and we pitched a crazy idea this was another weird synergy mark cuban on the dallas mm -hmm. mavericks mm -hmm. we are going to do a live performance at every nba halftime show with tony <laughs> jaw showing people that he can do what he does in that film without strings without special effects mm -hmm. he is a true mm -hmm. legend yeah. and we actually did it and luke loved that uh, and that's why we got the movie. Another very outside-the-box idea that became very successful was to take the Oscar-nominated shorts and do something with that. And people, again, like, you know, I don't, I didn't know until I started prepping for this that this came from you. So the idea was just there's these great <laughs> small short films that are nominated for Oscars every year, and most people who watch the Oscars have never had a chance to see them, right? Never had a chance to see them. And honestly, I, in a very selfish way, I was like, how do I improve my, my odds come yeah. betting pool for Oscar season? <laughs> like these, these could be, you know, the deciding vote. I've never seen these movies. Well, crap. Why don't we buy these films post-nomination, release them before the Academy Awards? Very small window. I mean, just, it was, I was just naive and dumb enough <laughs> to think that, of course, we can do this. Mm -hmm. And I pitch it to Mark. Be wary of what you pitch to Mark because <laughs> he very rarely says no. Mm -hmm. And he said yes. And then I realized, like, now I got to go figure this out. And I have no idea what I'm doing. So, large credit to Jason Janago, who mm -hmm. was our 
lawyer at Magnolia. Him and I just got into a foxhole and figured it out. And we knew that if we didn't get every single nominated film that we might miss the winner. Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, another company had the same idea that we did at the same time. And so I had to go out and buy all the live action films and all the animated films we had to buy. I, I think first year we were buying a Pixar short. I mean, we are a company who is competitive, obviously not on anybody's radar at right. Disney Pixar. And we're asking them to sell us their movie. Each nominee an individual deal to then theatrically exhibit these as a package and hope that you make back your money. And hope you make back your money yeah. and to do it in time to deliver the film to the right. theater. And again, having the asset of theaters that we could mm -hmm. book film right into, into without them knowing what it was or us yeah. knowing we could deliver. Wouldn't have been possible otherwise. Would not have been possible. So credit to Mark and Todd for building a company and giving executives like me and Jason the opportunity to go out and do something crazy like this. But the best part about it was we didn't get every film, but we got delivery of every film. Mm -hmm. And the day of launch, we finally closed the last deal of the last holdout. And we must have paid five times for that film <laughs> than what we paid for every other film. But it was a break even. Mm -hmm. And Carter Pritchell, who started a company called Shorts International, mm -hmm. was trying to buy the same films. Mm -hmm. He was going to get a couple. I was going to get a couple. And we were going to basically blow the promise of what this could be. Yeah. And I remember late, late, late night Berlin, Berlin Film Festival, mm -hmm. trying to do my day job and then the night job of trying to buy all these short films. I just called him. I said, you're not getting all the films. <laughs> if you do not work with me, this will be a wasted effort. Knowing that I was in the same position, right, right. he flinched. We wound up doing it together. We split everything down the middle. Uh, Came pretty profitable. And And... and the best part about it was we got to, you know, as a distributor, you never get to do the same film over again. And every year at the same time, the same caliber of film with two Academy Awards guaranteed. No mm -hmm. distributor ever gets those odds mm -hmm. as long as we bought every <laughs> right. nominated film. And this habitual idea of the audience knowing these films are coming, it doubled in size year after year after year. And yeah. it's still this huge successful no, program, amazing. even this year in the shortened window. Yeah. No, it's incredible. I'm, I'm grateful because I also never had gotten to see them before that. Another big contribution during your time at Magnolia, the Six Shooter film series. Now, this was part of Magnet releasing, which was, I guess, intended to be the sort of a genre focus of Magnolia. And it's we have that to thank for your relationship with director Bond, right? This is true. I felt that Magnolia was a great home and, and could service all films, but at some point I felt that we needed to dive deeper and do something that could engender an identity within an audience that was, you know, true believers in genre film from all over the world. And I went to Toronto for some test screening and was at some backyard cool get together with Colin Geddes, who programmed the Midnight Madness for many, many years. And I just said to him, I was like, I want to launch a genre label. I don't know what it looks like. What do you think I should buy? And I think he said, you should buy Johnny Toe's Triad. I was like, I know, I know that. I, I love Johnny Toe. He said, and you should buy this movie called The Host. Mm -hmm. I was like, what's that? <laughs> and he said, it's a great Korean director. He's done two other movies. It's a director's fortnight. And, and I said, Oh, and I know the third film. And it wasn't Asian-centric. It was like, these are the best, yeah. coolest, elevated genre movies the world has to offer. 
was uh, I'm going to go finally buy Battle Royale. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the idea. And Mark said again, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had a genre label, but we didn't have any movies. And The Host was the first film that we bought for this label. Um, I did not get the triad. And uh, I spent 10 years chasing uh, Battle Royale, and I'll still chase it to this day, but <laughs> I, I did not get it. Yeah. But there was, I think, the first of the shooter film series was actually Let the Right One In, right? So it was a great year. I mean, we, yeah. we uh, I guess it was the subsequent spring when I went to Berlin. And I think in the first 15 minutes of seeing Let the Right One In, I was trying to negotiate the film. During the <laughs> yeah, I just, I, just, I just knew it yeah. instinctually. And yeah. yes, I've made mistakes like that before. Yeah. But when you know, you know. Yeah. Weirdly enough, you know, I, you know I, I'm not particularly savvy about all of the, the tropes of what a vampire film should be. But what I really did know is, you know, having spent four years in Sweden mm -hmm. and knowing what a winter afternoon feels like in Sweden, that film nailed it. Yeah. And it looked like the childhood that I had had. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think that was the part that I loved about the film most. Yeah. It was about these two outsider kids who happened to bond to deal with, you know, extraordinarily difficult circumstances. They just, one of them just happened to be a vampire. <laughs> and, and for me, that was the first real hybrid elevated you know, all Absolutely. of these stereotypical adjectives that we, we, we ascribe to genre now, that was the first time that I had experienced something like that. Totally. I remember the, the whole concept of elevated horror yeah. sort of came out of that. But just to come back for a second to the host. So this comes out and you guys put this out in 2006, but in your first interaction with director Bong, I guess he wasn't at Cannes when you bought it. I was, but I, I didn't meet him. I was doing the deal at 4 a.m. on a napkin <laughs> with uh, Young Ju Su at CineClick Asia. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it was just a credit to Eamon Bowles, a credit to Mark Cuban, Todd Wagner, to, to give us enough leash to hang ourselves with mm. and go out and get the deal done. And then your first actual interaction with director Bong, I heard there was a, a love at first sight at, based so, on... So <laughs> we, we, we have... His version of this and my version of this are different. <laughs> okay. So clearly neither of us remembers it as it was. But we probably met in Toronto mm -hmm. shortly, but we didn't say much. And my first real personal interaction that I remember with Bong, short but memorable, was walking down the street in Edinburgh because we'd bought an all English language rights for the film and bought it with Will Clark at Optimum mm -hmm. uh, as well as uh, Paul Wiegard at Madman. And uh, so I traveled with the film and make sure everything was going well. But we were walking down the street in Edinburgh and a whole bunch of people rolled out of a bar and it was a bit of a scrum and it looked real messy. And so we had to walk around it and get out of harm's way. And he sort of looked back and he looked at me and he said, train spotting. <laughs> and I just, you know, for me, that sums up who he is, that he could sort of very quickly relate to what that was. Right in the most meaningful way, but through the prism of cinema. Yeah. And I was like, this guy's savvy, <laughs> totally savvy, knows exactly what he's doing. And over the years, obviously his English is, is you know, we, we, we do communicate in English. Yeah, so. and that movie, we should just remind people of the, the birth of this, I think now five film collaboration, four or five films that you've been involved with together, did very well, especially in ancillary business, the host, I'd read something like $2 million on DVD and VOD. It's, it's, it's larger than that. Even so more. yeah, that it grossed a little over $2 million theatrically, but 
if I remember correctly, and this is in the weeds, this is going to put people to That's asleep, right. but That's I love right. this stuff. You know, the host, we we moved about 400,000 units on wow. DVD. Wow. And that was a lot. Yeah. It was real. You know, and we did very near that on Let the Right One In, too. And so what people don't see, you know, we're all consumed by box office mojo and, you know, as we should be. But the reality is, is there was a large fan base for Bong Joon-ho then. Mm -hmm. And during the DVD boom, during, during the host. And, you know, he, he landed on the scene at slam dance with, with barking dogs and everybody, which I did not see. Mm -hmm. And then memories of murder, which was at Palm. And I believe Ryan Werner, who was head of distribution, marketing publicity there released that film, which I missed that too. Mm. But I was definitely very in tune with the films of Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked on Shiri, mm-hmm. which is, is a very similar story to JSA at Goldwyn through mm-hmm. Sony. Mm-hmm. It was something they picked up ancillary-wise that we released at Goldwyn. And then was introduced to Peppermint Candy, introduced to uh, The Isle. and So uh, you could really have a conversation with Bong when you told oh, I, I was you know that was that was my country of origin films from Korea yeah. that is something I really really understood mm-hmm. so to give a little bit of context mm-hmm. of coming into the host mm-hmm. you know I just filmmaking that I I had not seen from anyone anywhere yeah. else in the world and and ironically one of the first things that I tried to do at Magnolia mm-hmm. was something I tried to do at Goldwyn three four months earlier was to buy old boy uh which I saw at a screening in MeFed, standing up in a smoke-filled room, you know, the old (laughs) boondoggle in Milan. And I'd never seen anything like that. I can't believe I stood up the whole time because all the seats were taken. And I tried to buy that film then for $50,000. Couldn't get Sam to approve it. And then I just got this crazy idea that, how how are we going to be competitive to close this movie? Ugh, everybody's consumed by remakes. I guess I could put a remake deal on the table. I called Sam. I said, let's do this deal as a million-dollar deal. The film and remake rights, David Lynch does the remake. And he said, you know, he said to me, oh, that's, thank you, Tom. The, we'll think about it. And, I, you know, in hindsight, after getting back to New York, I found out from Peter that Sam thought I should probably get fired. That was the craziest <laughs> idea anybody had ever proposed, but I, I just had never seen anything like yeah. it. And so I was, I was primed for this movie, even though I actually didn't know Bong Joon-ho. Right. Well, host 06, mother 09, which he's joked that you're, you were not as enamored of, but he would, but you were loyal <laughs> enough of a believer in him to go with it. And ironically, you know, he's not the biggest fan of his first film, which right. I actually think there's a lot of merit there. You can yeah. see the blueprint for where he was going to go. Right. It's not an anomaly. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually went back and bought that and re-released it at Magnolia. We did like a, a box set with that mother and, and the host. Yeah, I, yeah, good, good. It, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, mother, I I wasn't in love with it, but I, I it was part of his filmography, so I understood it. Right. And... Yeah, who am I to question Bong Joon-ho? <laughs> well, this brings us to September 2011 when you, I believe, bounce from Magnolia to go work with Jason Janago, who you mentioned earlier, and essentially start up your own boutique division of the Weinstein within the Weinstein Company. And that was Radius, which I think 
was an incredible, you know, few, I ended up being four years only, just under four years, but you guys, the, the legacy of that place is going to live on for a long time. And I just want to quickly prompt you, well, I guess the move over there, was it a tough call to do that? Yeah. I, the reality is I was never going to leave Goldwyn. I was very happy. I felt part of the family and, you know, seven years at any company in this mm. business is a really, really long time, seven yeah. and a half years. And so I just, I realized that I could do more and I wanted to, to see how far I could go. Mm -hmm. And Magnolia was the right step. Mm -hmm. I was never going to leave Magnolia. Mm -hmm. I was very happy there. In the back of my mind, I'd sort of bookended when Tony Jaw does a sequel to, to Ungbach, my job here is done. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't know why I thought that, but mm -hmm. it just seemed, and so it, that happened mm -hmm. and I was like, well, God, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. But I wasn't going to leave. And credit to Jason, you know, I'd, I'd always gotten the call from Harvey. What are you doing? You know, and I'm like, I'm not coming to work for you. <laughs> for anything. You're like the worst bully. <laughs> I don't need that in my life. I love this company. Magnolia is a beautifully run company. And Jason and I were thinking, well, what else do we do? What else? Where else can we go? And, you know, it also felt like we had to, we, we ultimately had to start looking elsewhere because we felt that we were missing out on films, you know, that there were mistakes being made. You couldn't afford things you wanted. Well, could, we could have, mm -hmm. but, you know, the business plan was, you know, yeah. yes, we spent a lot of money on things that were true, true art films. But, you know, having been there from almost the beginning with a director like Nicholas Winding Refn, you know, we did four movies with him mm -hmm. and I've since done five with him. Wow. Uh, I just felt, well, if we're going to do that, why aren't we a part of Drive? Isn't mm -hmm. isn't that also that's part that, of being right. committed and a part of this director's right. career? And and that was a real turning point for me that there has to be something else. Mm -hmm. If we're not going to do that, then maybe I should think mm -hmm. about going elsewhere. But I, I personally had no interest in leaving. And Jason, God love him. You know, we I would call us business par partners at Magnolia mm -hmm. and ultimately business partners at Radius. Mm -hmm. We went out to lunch one day and he said to me, and I understood this analogy. He said, don't you want to go pro? <laughs> and he, he's a big basketball mm -hmm. fan. I'm a basketball mm -hmm. fan. And, you know, my dad coached collegiately and pro on the mm -hmm. international level. But he, I think, was very interested at one point in, in and he lost out uh, the 76ers job. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I, th I think I want to go pro, whatever that means, you know, but he definitely got inside my head and, and, uh, needless to say, I think four or five offers later, I just kept saying, no, of course mm -hmm. not. I'm yeah. not doing that. And he made me an offer that I said, no. And I came home and told my wife, I said, he offered me this. This is crazy. Mm -hmm. What's he thinking? And my wife, to her credit, she said, I think you need to call him back. Mm -hmm. That's something that you know, we will be able to, uh, she was pregnant at the time. Mm -hmm. This is college education mm -hmm. and we have to start thinking about the future. Mm -hmm. And I said, Oh, Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So I, I give, <laughs> I she give her full credit. Yeah. 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 And, uh, so I sort of modeled it out, you know, as a, this is not going to work, <laughs> uh, but we're doing it for the family. Yeah. And so I modeled it out, you know, what does two years of my life mm -hmm. look like? And is, is there a path in this industry after that. Right. And as it turns out, we were a satellite operation with our own office mm -hmm. and we did exactly what we wanted to do. And, and mostly they stayed out of your way. 
they completely stayed out of our way. They were never, they never even came to, to our To the office. office. Never. Never. <laughs> never. So the one time you guys did interact was on Snowpiercer because they, I think at your urging, had acquired this next Bong movie, 2013, but then ran into some issues that you were able to extricate Bong from, right? So our first Toronto at Radius, uh, Jason and I went down to look at a promo for Snowpiercer. And, you know, the rest of the, you know, the, the Uber team at the Weinstein company was there. And I said, this looks amazing. I, you guys should do it. You know, we were the boutique label. This was clearly a bigger film. And I said, he's never made a bad movie. Never. So whatever it takes. And that was it. That was my only contribution. And so they did the deal many, 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 many months later going through what was an interminable editing hell with Harvey. And I, I didn't see any of those cuts. Um, and at some point, Prior to its Berlin premiere, I think Harvey decided that he didn't want to do it and that it would be best if maybe Radius did it. I was like, great, that's awesome. I mean, how lucky are we? Right. Uh, and, and Bong was comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. But my one mandate was it has to be Bong's cut. Otherwise, what's the point? Mm -hmm. You know, whether they agreed on their own or that pushed it over the edge, we released Bong's cut of the film. And both, I mean, with Snowpiercer, with It Follows, Bachelorette, you guys did a lot of interesting distribution techniques and, and rollouts there and then became a huge force in the documentary realm with back-to-back -back Oscars, I remember well, for 20 Feet from Stardom and Season 4, yep. but ended up leaving August 2015, just about two years before that whole place imploded. And uh, I just wonder... You know, from seeing from your time in proximity to Harvey, what were the biggest takeaways in terms of knowing how to how to and how not to run your own operation, which was what, of course, came next with Neon? Yeah, I, I, I felt that it was a horribly run business financially. Mm -hmm. And we we uh, I tried to separate our budget out from the company's budget, even at, you know, a fraction of what you know, give me less. But allow us to be in control of our own destiny. And they just wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I loved my team, 10 people, and extraordinary group, an extraordinary opportunity, and really good at what we were doing. You know, we had managed to really change the face of what distribution was using VOD, transactional first window launching of films to, you know, it was very rare that we weren't profitable. Mm -hmm. And that allowed us to do exactly what we wanted film-wise, that we took the wallet out of the equation. Mm -hmm. But we also wanted to do films, you know, it wasn't a one-size-fits-all approach, that some films would, would get lost on VOD and, and had to be built in a traditional model. 20 Feet from Stardom was mm -hmm. the first theatrical film that we did there. Mm -hmm. and it was a huge success. And that allowed us to do more. Mm -hmm. And we got to the point where we were ready to do things you know i remember there were two films that harvey did not want to do that we uh we're like we're dying to mm -hmm. do this uh the first film was the sundance premiere jason blunt produced it oh whiplash whiplash yeah and I was like, this is the best movie we're going to see here we can get it for three million yeah let's go and he's like i'm not going to do it you're not going to do it and i was like oh okay yeah. well I'm shocked you're not going to do it. Yeah. At least let us yeah, do it. Yeah. And he said, uh, he said no. And then the other film was, I think like a $4 million pre-buy, extraordinary script, Nightcrawler. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I was like, if you're not going to do it, let yeah, us do it. Anyway. And I realized at that point that, again, we're going to be contained in the sandbox. Mm-hmm. We need to grow and go do something elsewhere. And so you and Jason decide you're going to leave in August 2015. And between then and December 2016, when Neon starts... I guess Jason ends up deciding not to go forward, but you end up working with Tim League, who you'd previously had, I think, four Lions dealings with on when he first started Draft House. So just the idea, you're starting Neon. What at that point was the dream of what it would be? What did you have to do to get it off the ground? I think by process of trial and error, and you know, at this point, 15 years of experience in the business, and, and very slowly... Not particularly intelligently, but honing in on the things that I wanted to be a part of, that I could understand, that I felt the marketplace needed. And just eliminating the mistakes, being a home for directors and growing with them, but being small enough that we could do Citizen Four, but being large enough that we get to do Snowpiercer. And get to do Snowpiercer not in a day and date manner, but doing it as a wide release. Mm-hmm. And you know, the last film that we did at Radius was Goodnight Mommy, but the next to last film was It Follows, which we pulled the VOD window and did as a mid-wide release, which was the first time that we got to be, you know, that we had moved beyond that 600 print threshold, yeah. that we finally understood that maybe we can do this too and gave us enough confidence that we can build the largest menu that any distributor could offer, day and date, specialized or wide. Mm-hmm and build tailor-made release plans for what made sense for that film. So that would be the, the new world at Neon with, I think, $30 million financing initially, I'd read, was what you got off the ground with. 2017, you go to the Toronto Film Festival and make your first big splash with I, Tanya, which So we, we, uh, we actually got less than that from uh, our first angel investor, uh, Jackie Chan's SR Media. Okay. Yeah, which was totally out of left field, and they were an amazing partner. And met them in Toronto, and we bought a movie together. And six weeks later, we had an operating agreement and money in the bank. And we were off and running. And uh, from that September Toronto to April of 2017, we launched our first movie. I think it was April 7th or 4th. Mm -hmm. It was a movie called Colossal Mm -hmm. by director Nacho Vigalando, whom I had worked with previously at Magnolia on a film called Time Crimes. And Tim had worked with him as well through the Alamo Mm Drafthouse. So it's just a, you know, we all knew each other really, really well. It was the perfect launch Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. what we wanted to do. And the movie is a, an unromantic comedy inside of a kaiju monster film, (laughs) unlike any other film you've ever seen starring Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis. So so it kind of fit who we were. Um, But cut to September of that year, we stumble into the bottleneck screening that was I, Tanya, which I was not interested in. Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, I knew the Tanya Harding story. I was like, what could this (laughs) film possibly add? Right. And blew me away. And the movie was hard hitting. It was tough. It's about things that I found really profound and things that I had overlooked, didn't read in any of the headlines, the domestic abuse that she suffered. And that movie made me feel absolutely 100% guilty for participating in that news cycle. And I thought that that was something extraordinary. And also the way the film was being positioned, you know, that you've got at least one actress nod, mm-hmm. Alice and Janney, like that's a layup. Yeah. 
But I, I thought, no, no, I think Margot Robbie more, yeah. should also find herself in the race. But before you can even think about that, you have to get the movie when you're oh bidding God. against Netflix and people who are have big, way more resources at that point, and yet you guys prevailed. And just briefly, what was the, how do you then and now, with somewhat limited means, compete against these giants and win? Yeah, I, you know, the simple vision of being a, a home for directors combined with trying to find the best available films the world has to offer, the full spectrum of the very small curated art film documentary, to being able to do the very large crossover opportunities like Itania. You know, the one thing that we felt the majority of the slate, if not the entire slate, would be dedicated to the big screen, to cinema, that those are the films that we really felt would make up who we were. And uh, while we've done a couple of day and date films, you know, that was the right release plan for those films. But the majority, I'd say 95% is 100% dedicated to, 95% uh, is 100% dedicated to the idea of cinema. Yeah. And so sitting next to Netflix, which wound up being our biggest competitor mm -hmm. year one for other movies like Ingrid Goes West, mm -hmm. Colossal, but especially I, Tanya, we offered an accredit to Margot Robbie, we offered the release plan and the strategy that she felt was the best thing for the film. And she was right, mm -hmm. we were right. Mm -hmm. And we clicked right away as, as a team coming together that we were underdogs, not unlike what this film was as a story, what she, where she was at in her career as a producer. But we had the confidence that we would approach this film in the way that they made it, that we would enter into an Academy season with a red band trailer because that's what the film was. Mm -hmm. And so little decisions like that, you know, it was a wonderful opportunity for us as a company to to find our stride about the things that we believe in. I guess it shined and got those nominations that you mentioned. Probably came very close to Best Picture if they would just freaking guarantee 10 every year. But anyway, that brings us to, with our remaining time, this incredible roller coaster ride of Parasite, which I think in some ways seems to have emerged from a bit of disappointment that Okja had was one of the ones that did get away to Netflix. And I know you'd wanted to be involved and tried to get involved with that. But when that was not possible, it's like, well, we're going to get in at the very beginning on the next bong. Is that a fair way of? Yeah. I, I, the directors that we have worked with, you know, we are committed to their, their full filmography, people like Nacho Vigalondo, Laura Poitras, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a pretty consistent notion that, and we want repeat yeah. filmmakers. And whatever Bong was going to do next, we wanted to be a part of. And yes, we tried desperately with Okja. You know, uh, would have offered pretty significant money, even in a non-exclusive theatrical-only window. It just made sense. We yeah. loved the movie, extraordinary film, and had real value, and thought that that was the right approach to how it should be launched into the marketplace. And so the same room that, not the same room, same hotel, yeah. In Toronto, having a meeting with CJ and discussing his next project, mm -hmm. which I'd known about, and credit to our head of acquisitions, Jeff, making sure that we were on top of it. Uh, read the script within the next 48 hours and made an offer and closed it and announced at AFM. Which is not a common, we should just be clear to people, it's not a common occurrence to buy a script, for you to buy a script, right? We, we'd done a couple, a few. Uh, nonfiction and, and fiction, but we... What we paid and 
at that stage without seeing any footage. Yeah, that that's not always common and certainly wasn't common for us. Premieres at Cannes, eight minutes standing ovation, wins the Palm, and now you've, you realize you've got some real potential here. I'm sure you saw it obviously earlier, but that that's a different level. And what I was fascinated to hear was that you decided to really model. I remember the last time when we had breakfast at the Four Seasons, we were talking about a guy by the name of Don Rugoff. And that was because Ira Deutschman's son That's right. was working for you. And Ira Deutschman was making a documentary about Don Rugoff. Yeah. And I don't remember how much you knew at that time about Don Rugoff, but subsequently in terms of carrying Parasite from Cannes through the Oscars, you apparently modeled it after what this guy who had run a company called Cinema 5 in the 70s, 60s and 70s, did with the movie Z, which, just let's mention, ended up with picture, director, screenplay, film editing, and foreign language Oscar noms, five of the same six that you ended up. You guys got one more. And one, two. And one, two. Yeah. Didn't make it to the promised land like Parasite did. No movie ever did. But So what what was the model? What did Don Rugoff do with that that you guys then replicated so effectively? So I didn't know Don Rugoff when you mentioned it, but I fumbled my way into Z, mm-hmm. Costa Gavras, a film that was marketed in a certain way as an event, something that's, you've never seen before, but in a single theater in New York, Cinema 1 and 2, which yes. is now Cinema 1, 2, 3. Yes. And the way that that company approached worldwide cinema, you know, it all seemed to make perfect sense about turns out this is what we're doing. And the notion that a film could both, I think it grossed $17 million, you know, it's big. Yeah, it's huge. It's massive. And, you know, that we were not going to reinvent the wheel, that we were going to do something that was pure and cinematic. And mm-hmm. at some point also show mm-hmm. this film at cinema one, two, three in yes. New York, uh, which I, I, it tickled me when it was finally there, but yes. we opened at a single screen in New York at the IFC center. And to create that event, that line around the block, yeah. Yeah. which Ira's film shows that that was the true magic of the communal experience of an audience coming together. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do these people actually talk to each other as strangers after having seen a movie. A movie that can encourage people to do that, right. that's the film that we absolutely want to be a part of because that's a memorable experience. But the line outside before the movie is the first date for these strangers that... I think makes that a lot easier. And the line around the block at the IFC Center was like it was 1970. It was amazing. And this, obviously, you guys, I mean, kept this thing alive from May through February and picked up momentum all along the way, this little engine that could sort of rooting factor. Now we get to Oscar night, and I want to just break down a few things, just really first thing that comes to your mind if we can. If I had given you truth serum on the red carpet on the way in, how many and which Oscars did you think you were likely to win? <laughs> I was saying four. And sometimes dumb methodology works. I just liked holding up four The fingers. number four. Yes. Uh, did you think picture was one of those four? I Picture was not in one of the four. Okay. Best picture was not in one of the four. Um, but the reality is, is, you know, I've, I've been through this business in a way that it doesn't always work out the way that it should or the way that you hope it will. And the fact that, you know, Apollo 11 was not nominated, right. which for me is one of my favorite cinematic experiences of the year, was Same. really, really hard. 
and or that portrait of a lady on fire not was not submitted by yeah. the French, right? Yeah. So you, you can't will it into existence. Uh, but I believed, I did believe. Yes. At what point in the show did you begin to think that Best Picture actually could happen? I actually thought Best Picture could happen mm-hmm. when we won the SAG Ensemble Award. Right. That's when history was made and felt that it was almost bigger than winning the Palme d'Or. Yeah. But the only other film to be nominated in that category was Life is Beautiful. And the, and the irony is that Costa Gavras and Z and Cinema 5 and Cinema 1-2 in New York were the path to what we would do as a distributor. But the way that we talked about this film was not burning. Mm-hmm. It was not 100 years of Korean cinema tradition. Right. It was not Shoplifters, right. the previous Palme d'Or winning film the year previous, which I kind of offended me hearing mm-hmm. it from journalists and even you know some consultants that we we yeah. wound up working with this is the first way that the film was being talked about and we very quickly disabused everyone of, of, that of, of that notion that no no this is extraordinary cinema on par with Steven Spielberg it's extraordinary cinema on par with Guillermo del Toro yep. Alfonso Caron any global director operating at the top of their game it's as if Martin Scorsese is coming into to taxi think and make, big. think bigger and think yeah. on a scale of cinema. And, and so that was the one thing that I feel made the belief of where we could go possible, but seeing it at the SAG awards and that you, was the first. and you saw it. Uh, I, I, I almost had a heart attack when, when, when the film was announced, yeah. but, but the love and affection in that room at SAG you're talking about. Yeah. When they just got the ovation even for coming out. Great. But just coming out, and that to me was ultimately, I think we can go somewhere really special. Bong's charm, preferential ballot, some other good luck thing. What swung this? How did this happen with Best Picture? The the math showed that it was actually possible. Yeah. So we always had a belief and hope that it could. Just the passion. Uh, not winning the editing award was was a surprise, believe it or not, but winning... Because you weren't up against 1917 there, so that was the spot where it could happen. I thought that that yeah. would sort of yeah, build a foundation for, for yeah. going all the way. But screenplay... Yeah, that was big. That was... That's when, you know, we were ultimately, you know, that in foreign language, it just... You're on, the momentum was... Yeah. How many people work at Neon, and did you guys staff up during the season? No, we, we're... 28 people were never going to be much larger than that. We worked with uh, Leah, yep. uh, whom you know, PR, Leah from Perception PR, yep. and she was the person who worked with us on Itanya. And so we've right. had a longstanding oh, relationship. So us and that team, yeah, we're, we're each other's go-to. And, Leah, and Gina, Julie, all of them. No, yeah, great. Yeah. And uh, Rebecca. And then also, I guess you were working fairly closely with Mara, with... Bong. So Mara came on board as Bong's personal rep, yeah. and she was fantastic yeah. and long-standing. I don't think I've ever released a film without working with Ryan Werner. Ryan Werner, right? And the best part of all, Nancy Will. Amazing, full circle. How much at at the end of the day did the awards campaign cost? Just because I think relative to these big guys, it's it's a fascinating thing to to talk about. And then was that a daunting thing to spend? Maybe a little more than you would normally. It's uh, it's a similar spend to Itania. Okay. And I would ask you, what do you think it is? $5 million? $10 million? The one thing I would say is that people forget that, you know, combining your Academy campaign with, with, the, rollout, with, yeah. with the rollout is right. is key. And the rollout spend and the rollout advertising is always more yeah. interesting and impactful. Yeah. Um, yeah, we... 
there are a couple secrets that I, I, I will not divulge. Yeah. I don't think they're particularly interesting, yeah. but things that we've seen in years past yeah. that have worked really well for us. Yeah. The one thing that we did not do, we don't do any outdoor advertising. Mm-hmm. And we just don't think it's particularly impactful. I don't like seeing it all over town personally. Yeah. And I don't want to clutter the environment in, this, in the way that, that I see it. But we did do one small installation of a beautiful art piece. An illustrator had done this amazing look of Song Kang Ho. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. So, you know, I think that that might be more of a, a testament to how we approach it. Wherever you are, make sure it's in tune with the film and be as big as everybody else. How far off am I on the figure? I think it's a little high. Ten's crazy. Ten's crazy. Uh, and and five is is still a little high. Still but the reality high. is, where do you where do you draw the line about the right. distribution the, the expense blur. combined with the academy? Expense? What's the value? Why do people do that in two thousand twenty to for anybody to let's or let's say for a company your size doing what you do? What makes it worth trying? And now that it's happened so magnificently. What do you imagine the value of the Oscar is to, or the Oscars, but especially the big one, is to your company? What's going to change as a result of this happening? We're going to keep doing the same thing. Yeah. Year one looks a lot like year three. The reality is, is... Will you put out more movies? No. Same I, number? I, it's the same number, possibly less. And, mm-hmm. you know, we did a fair number of incredible documentaries in foreign language films yeah. year one, but they didn't have the same impact that the documentaries and foreign language films had had this year, but we believed in them equally. So I, I don't think that the slate changes that much. The one thing that we are intent on doing and to be a home for filmmakers to grow with is yes, we, we feel that we're ready and you know, we wanted to walk before we could run, but we'd like to make movies. Well, you'll make movies. So how do you enter that arena now? What's the, with one or a certain number? Or? I don't think you can cherry pick and I don't yeah. think you can do one. I don't think that works yeah. for the same reason that you can't just cherry pick a foreign language right. film right. or a document. You, you have to be committed to cinema throughout your whole That's slate. So and, and a director that we may discover on film one, working with them on their second film, you know, that's, that's a gateway and, and would be an, make us an awesome home for filmmakers to come grow with. You and Bong already have a understanding or a deal for we, the next we, one? We, we've never had an understanding. And I don't think any output deal that you've ever had with anyone is really worth anything but the relationship that you have. So yeah, of course, we would love to work with them again. Finally, just what's the legacy of this win and the success of Parasite? Do you believe that the traditional theater release model is is bolstered? Do you think we're going to see an increase in non-English language films released? Do you think, you know, more U.S. pickups of foreign titles or what in the big picture is going to change as a result of this truly historic, unprecedented thing? I think the value of the theatrical release has always been there. And, you know, studies have shown that films that are more relevant on streaming services are those that have had a significant traditional theatrical release. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy that maybe this encourages others to commit to what is an extraordinary way to launch film, Mm -hmm. the traditional theatrical window. You know, what does it mean this weekend? Two extraordinary things happen. Parasite won Best Picture. 92 years later, it's the first time it's ever happened. Mm -hmm. Bong Joon-ho walks away with four Academy Awards. No other person outside of Walt Disney's done that. 66 years ago. That is a testament to... Fools like us doing fool's errands for films that we believe in 
and filmmakers that we think represent the best the world has to offer. And all of my friends, you know, I spent 20 years in New York, whether it's Ryan Werner, Ariana Bacco, Michael and Tom, you know, or Bingham Ray, this was a win that felt for us in this part of the industry was for us. But it was also the weekend that Lulu Wang won for the farewell. Mm -hmm. The two biggest prizes, the two biggest best pictures of the weekend mm -hmm. were films from Asian directors, mm -hmm. stories that we have not seen before on screen, who were massive theatrical successes, massive award successes mm -hmm. in the same weekend to represent an underrepresented community as those two films do. That's amazing. That's incredible. And I will just close by saying that, you know, on a personal note, I've been lucky to, I think probably starting around radius when you guys started there to, to get to know you. And it's like, you know, it really is a nice thing when you see nice people have success in, and on this level, it's, I know we're all wrapping our heads around it still. And I just hope you, you know, feel that love from the community. It's out there. People are very happy for you guys. I hope you take a long vacation, maybe to South Korea, where you'll probably get a, a hero's welcome. And uh, I just thank you for doing this. Really appreciate well, it. Well, thanks, Scott. It's been a pleasure seeing you, listening to your podcast. I'm a little embarrassed being on here. You belong here as much as anyone. Uh, but the thing I'm ultimately most proud of, yeah, I'm definitely proud of Bong Joon-ho mm -hmm. and the rest of the Parasite team. But the reality is the Neon team, a lot of the people that work here worked at Radius. Yeah. And uh, Christina Zisa, yeah, head of publicity. Great. Christian Parks, our CMO. Alyssa Fedorov, the head of distribution, was the head of distribution at Radius. An extraordinary, amazing group of people. And to see what this team has accomplished, I'm really happy for them as much as I am myself. And last but not least, my parents were there at the Academy Awards. My mother said two things. One, going into the awards... You should have launched this film wider. Parasite, you waited too long. <laughs> She's getting into She's 80 <laughs> years old. I have no idea why she is an expert on distribution. But coming out of the awards, she said, you should bring your mother more often to the Academy Awards. Clearly, I'm a piece that of good luck. <laughs> Congrats again. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg, and you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.